Special shout out to one of our favorite media companies at Crooked Media. While hosting brilliant podcasts like Positive America, Hysteria, This Land, Love It or Leave It, and more, they even fund the things that matter. Chip in to the No Off Years Fund to support the work of organizers in key states who are making sure all eligible voters are registered early so they don't face any problems in making their voices heard next year. Your donation will be supporting frontline efforts in Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Wisconsin, places where new voters will help make the difference in our ability to win in 2022 and beyond. I myself have donated to the cause and look forward to seeing the outreach we can create. Check out votesaveamerica.com. That's votesaveamerica.com to find out more. Welcome back to a new episode of Capital Seas. I'm Charles Greenley. And I'm Nathan Crumpleton. We have a lot to cover today, so let's get right into the hill. So, Colin Powell recently passed away from COVID complications this week. If you are unaware of who he is, the best way to put it is by saying politically, he was the best of times and he was the worst of times. Powell was the first black secretary of state and was very popular at his prime. He also had a pretty hefty weigh-in of entering Iraq in the search for WMDs. A weigh-in that, when combined with others, ultimately created our two-decade war. Even with all that being said, the chosen topic for Republicans and right-wing media became his vaccination status. Powell had received both shots and had also had his booster shot when he died from the complications. However, those with knowledge of Powell had to say he was already immunocompromised and was suffering from a blood cancer and Parkinson's disease. All that to say, it's unfortunate that when your time is up, your death becomes a political issue and not a remembrance. A basketball game uh, between the Brooklyn Nets and the Charlotte Hornets had to be placed on a brief lockdown after anti-vaxxers broke through the barriers and were eventually restrained by security from the main doors of the Barclays Center. The protesters were speaking out in support of Kyrie Irving, who was unvaccinated. After the NBA announced their COVID guidelines for the upcoming season, under the current New York rules, Irving will not be allowed to play in any home games for the Nets, as well as missing two games against the Knicks, who also play in New York. The protests come in at a time of a long series of anti-vax protests, whose motto has become My Body, My Choice. An interesting choice, as I'm sure if you ask any of these protesters their stance on abortion, you would not hear those exact words. Trump is creating his own social network. Staying with his recent topic of choice, he's calling it Truth Social. It'll be a part of the new Trump Media and Technology Group, of which Trump is a chairman of himself. Go figure. When talking about the new network, Trump said, I created Truth Social and TMTG to stand up to the tyranny of big tech. We live in a world where the Taliban has a huge presence on Twitter, yet your favorite American president has been silenced. This is unacceptable. While I agree there has been some data suggesting Taliban presence growing in different social networks, I don't think creating a place that will undoubtedly be unfiltered is a better solution. I think we all need to remember that Trump is a businessman first and foremost, and understand the importance and implications of him creating a whole media group. I wonder where they go from here. Week, the House of Representatives found Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress for refusal to comply with a subpoena concerning his involvement and knowledge with the January 6th insurrection. This comes not as a surprise after Bannon refused to cooperate on the basis of Donald Trump's executive privilege, one which the Biden administration has refused to support. Bannon's actions have angered many Republicans, including Adam Kissinger and Liz Cheney, who are both on the January 6th commission. To which Cheney replied that Bannon and Trump's privilege arguments do suggest one thing, that the Trump, uh, that, uh, that, and that is that Trump is personally involved in the planning of January 6th. It should be noted that on his podcast on January 5th, Bannon said himself that all hell was going to break loose tomorrow. 
You know what, uh, how the old saying goes, Charles. The only reason to hide is when you have a reason to lie. And if Trump and Bannon's unwillingness to do so tells you anything, well, I'll let you be the judge. All right, you guys heard it here first. There's a lot going on on Capitol Hill, and uh, we get a couple of minutes to explain and talk about that uh, as best as we can. Uh, so for this next section, I want to just talk about a little bit of who's in the Senate. Um, right now, we are dealing with a kind of juncture that you don't really get to see a lot um, inside politics. And when big bills like this are happening, it's hard to see things like Democrats. Um, not actually getting along. Uh, so, Nathan, let's continue to mention people in government, and particularly in the Senate, for the next few months. When it comes to the current policy agenda, there's one really simple reason why we still continually mention two for the foreseeable future. What two could I possibly be talking about? Well, Charles, um, I, I, I have a strong indication you're probably talking about Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema. That is absolutely who i'm talking about i mean look i'm all for compromise but it is simply incredible watching the tensions rise and fall in the senate and particularly in the democratic sector joe manchin has been repeatedly on the fence and continues to push back on energy and climate related issues because of his state of west virginia nathan what's your take on manchin yeah i i mean you have to admire manchin for wanting to stand up for his state uh, even though what he's fighting for might not necessarily be um, the, the true priorities of the state. Uh, those in the political sphere kind of see Joe Manchin as the, the coal senator. Uh, when coal makes up a very, very small percentage of what uh, West Virginia's uh, economy is built on. So uh, right now, I think he's just beating the bush on what he actually does stand for and just kind of going back and forth, back and forth. Uh, with this messaging system right uh i think it's the same exact thing i mean we were talking about right before the podcast started uh that mention has basically just kind of been hiding behind the coal uh production of west virginia uh, which we've been talking about isn't really that actually big in uh, his state it's just something that people assume happened um i know most people probably assume west virginia virginia any of those are still pretty outdated inside their energy conservation um, and coal seems to be like the miners kind of facility um, and you do think that a lot of those rural areas and places like West Virginia have a bunch of mines which is just not the case we've kind of progressed in um, technology in different ways from that uh, so I mean do you think that anybody's gonna take more attention to what exactly he's actually running it for I mean, probably not. Uh, at the end of the day, coal is still important to West Virginia. Um, I understand that. Joe Manchin obviously understands that. And even Joe Biden understands that. Um, but with that, we kind of have just adapted to know that this is who he is. Uh, this is what he's going to say he's passionate about. And that's something that we're kind of just stuck with at the moment. Yeah, I think that just pretty much uh, says what it needs to say. Biden uh, himself has said it plenty of times that he believes Manchin is a good man. Um, he just is stuck with a state that um, really is impossible to be uh, very democratic in right now. Uh, if you looked at the election results, I mean, Trump won it by 40 points. It was pretty much 70% to 30%. It is really uh, impossible to be a democratic policymaker inside of a state that you lost by 40 points. 
Yeah, um, I, I think when you look at it, you have to give him a round of applause. Joe Manchin is a campaigner. Uh, he, he can convince the people of West Virginia to believe in him, uh, even if that speaks out to what is a very Trump state. Uh, Manchin, it's also a Manchin state. So, I, I mean, props to him. Yeah, I, I got to give credit to Manchin, too. Uh, but when it comes to Kristen Sinema, her specific pushbacks are, well, we aren't really sure, are we? No, we're, we're really not, Charles. Um, cinema is full of surprises. Um, you, you just you never really know where she's going to come out standing for something. Uh, at this point, it's just kind of a shot in the dark and hope and pray that she falls in line with what we believe in. And a six, seven times out of ten, it's not going to happen. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure even at this point, you've seen um, the host of people that have just kind of dropped off of her campaign uh, just because they believe that she is taking more money from the corporations and not caring about uh, the actual constituents of Arizona. Do you agree? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, a, a lot of me in the past has said, uh, I've been very vocal on social media, that this is kind of just a constant campaign is what it feels like uh every week we kind of see cinema in the headlines for something new and something absurd uh and while it might not be as as absurd as what's coming out of some people from the right uh it's still something that's putting her in that center fold uh so it's just who who knows what she actually stands for at this point and it seems like it's just coming down to money and and being in the headlines right and i mean <laughs> being in the headlines has certainly uh, been a thing for her recently uh, first being that she was pretty much followed by uh, some people who wanted to see some policy changes into a bathroom. Um, and she said she was harassed uh, verbally uh, by these same people. Um, and then after that, it was made known that she was running a marathon um, for the, the Boston one um, and training for that while also inside this entirely uh, really heavy set political battle inside dc and then after that to make even matters worse uh she's been a intern paid intern in california for a winery i mean surprising that she's been in the news so much for things that really don't have much to do for policies yeah um i, I mean i i didn't really know too much about kirsten cinema until uh, the brunch photo of her infamous ring uh, came to light, and now I just, I, I've never stopped hearing about her since then. Um, so, I, I mean, it's just one thing after another, uh, and at this point, uh, from the stories that I'm hearing from the bathroom incident is that she is not willing to take a meeting with her constituents, but she's more than happy to go train for the Boston Marathon, so or, or be, be a paid intern for a winery in California. So this woman's just unpredictable. I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah, that's that's honestly the best way to put it. It's almost to a point where it's Trump-esque, um, which kind of leads me, do you think someone in her campaign is kind of in her ear saying, hey, Arizona might go red. Maybe we need to start pushing against some of these Democratic things. Uh, maybe we should kind of take some hard stands. Maybe we can see another candidacy in the future. Yeah, um, I, I think it's definitely a tough situation to be in. Uh, but you also have to keep in mind, Arizona isn't the only one. Uh, Georgia turned blue in 2020, and we don't see Warnock or Ossoff out here 
uh, acting this way or in this manner. Uh, any other state across the country, whether it be Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, these they're still not going to be this unpredictable. They're still not going to be this unrational. Yeah, I think I even kind of mess with the idea of thinking, is there possible that we could see a Republican uh, do what Manchin or Cinema uh, is doing? And I, you know, I looked around, seeing the results of the presidential, uh, seeing what states were um, really leaning Democratic, and but that still had senators who were Republican. Uh, really, all I could find was Pat Toomey, um, and he even was barely. Uh, kind of the minority in Pennsylvania based off the election. Uh, Biden won off of pretty much 1.5 uh, points inside of that state. Um, so I can't see any Republican basically uh, based off their coalition of camaraderie with each other because honestly, they'll throw you to the wolves if you step away from them. But to the point where I don't see any of them actually taking a stance where they say, hey, maybe I should throw my foot in if cinema or mansion are still being a little bit uh, needy. Right. Um, outside of our relatively two uh, liberal Republicans in, in the Senate, uh, it, we, we spoke last week about how we kind of don't see an identity of the Republican Party right now, yet we still don't see Republicans kind of seeking out uh, this, this straying away or this manipulation of power by being a centrist. Um, and, and so it's a really big question of what direction is the Democratic Party going when we have the centrists and the progressives kind of going at each other's throats right now? Yeah, and I think it shows a lot to the people that are actually in Congress um, trying to mediate this when we pretty much know everything's going on inside the left while the right is pretty much waiting on their thumbs and saying no whenever they get the chance to say no. Um, and that includes uh, the majority leader of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Even though she is not Senate, I think it would be a disservice not to be talking about her specifically with the BBB and the infrastructure uh, bill. Uh, she made a great decision about a month ago to make the House vote on both the bipartisan infrastructure bill with the reconciliation. Can you shine some light on our listeners on why that was such a crucial move? Yeah. Um, well, first and foremost, at the end of the day, um, the average person can tell you that it is hard to get things through Congress. Uh, it is nearly impossible. Uh, put that on top of everything we have happening in the Senate. Um, it's just important to go ahead and get these out of the House floor, get them ready to go. Um, that way, when inevitably it gets changed in the Senate, uh, the House can be prepared, ready to talk, uh, and get it moving quickly because it it will move even slower in the Senate. Right. Uh, I mean, we first got the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and we decided that was a win. Um, getting you know a few signatures from the right on that and it was pretty much decided from that point on that reconciliation was where we were going to put the majority of the agenda of Biden's in and if you do know uh, Senate and the voting procedures they have to have 60 votes you have to have a, a super majority for this to go through um, other than when you have a reconciliation bill which just pretty much comes off of um, your former bill it is the spending bill that's why bbb is so important in this kind of situation this is the only way we get it through um you only need 50 for this you you just that's all you need um so having that be partnered with this is the only way we get it through and having them vote on it at the same time 
make sure that we're not talking about them separately. Yeah, um, I mean, as it seems that ending the filibuster is not in the foreseeable future at the moment. Um, I, I mean, I know there's conversation, there's talks, but let's just be blunt here. Right here, right now, it's not going to happen. Uh, and so I think it's important that we get every vote that we can, uh, including Mansion and Cinema, who's been so hard to work with here, uh, to make sure that we just get something through at this point. Um, but between an evenly divided Senate, uh, while we still do have the House and the Senate in our power for the first time in so long. Yeah, I mean, like we said plenty of times inside the last episode, it's, it's really here or it doesn't happen. Um, and that's kind of the, the mindset that we're all going into. And now Biden has this kind of arbitrary uh, end date again that is before he flies off in seven days to pretty much uh, promote climate uh, from a country that is not promoting climate. So do you think the BBB is once again getting pushed forward even more and ramped up even more at this point? Um, I, I think it is kind of getting ramped up. I think the impatience of Mansion is kind of growing right now. Um, Cinema and Mansion have kind of drawn their their lines, and uh, President Biden met with Mansion this past weekend in Delaware, uh, and promises that we've made significant progress on BBB. Um, and, and so I think it's very possible that we're kind of just at a point where we're going to say, you know what, it's time to fall in line. Uh, let's get this passed and let's move forward uh, and we'll we'll repay you down the line. Well, that definitely seems to be what people are thinking. That seems to be what the press is also thinking. Um, but maybe we can get some more insight from Biden from his CNN town hall that we will talk about in our next piece. Um, and we'll be right back uh, after this break. So, Nathan, I learned a new acronym recently. Do you want to know what it is? Yeah, what is it? TERF, as in T-E-R-F, which stands for Trans-Exclusionary Radical Feminist. Now, I know you studied some gender studies during undergrad. Have you heard this before today? Maybe a certain Harry Potter author declaring themselves one? Uh, so, even though I was a gender studies minor, um, I actually didn't really hear about it until about a week ago. Well, in the past two weeks, someone else has claimed they fit into the same acronym. Dave Chappelle. Now, Nathan, what did you think about Chappelle's comments and jokes in his last special? Yeah. Um, so, first and foremost, I have a lot of respect for Dave Chappelle. I, I think he's a great comedian. I think he's one of the best to ever do it. Uh, I've seen all of his specials. Uh, two of my favorite SNL episodes were uh, both in 2016 and 2020, uh, coincidentally, after both election nights. Um, so I, I have a lot of respect for Dave Chappelle as a comedian. Do I think he went too far? Uh, do I think he probably shouldn't have, uh, you know, kind of focused on uh, the trans community as much as he did? Maybe so. So you are saying that you have seen The Closer, right? Yeah, uh, I, I watched it literally like two days after it came out. So I have to say, which might get me canceled myself. I didn't find too much harm in the special because when I really listened, I knew who I was listening to and why I was listening to it. Dave Chappelle is one of, if not the most aggressively polarizing comedians of the 21st century and is not ashamed of it either. In general, I found his comments fine, except for turf in his statement of gender being fat. 
we at this point should be well aware of the fact that gender is a social construct far beyond our imagining of it this far and therefore i cannot say whether something is fact or fiction even if he said sex was fact i don't think i can agree there either because fact means it draws a correct conclusion through all scopes perhaps non-fiction might be more appropriate for sex considering it stems more in the scientific nature of anatomy but i digress what i really want to talk about is the outrage that followed I'm following along and I'm about 90% certain that about 75% of the outtakes I've heard came from people who had not watched the special and formed the opinion based off of what has been said about it already. Which upon taking that information in, I found it fundamentally wrong. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, uh, I think you're spot on. At the end of the day, uh, gender is fluid. Uh, it is a moving spectrum uh, and so it's hard for us to say that it is fact or fiction because that's simply just not true. Um, and, and so I'm going to make a comparison here that might be a little controversial, but Dave Chappelle is the Kanye West of comedy. Um, I, I think Kanye is a great rapper. Um, I have a lot of respect for the work that Kanye has put out uh, as an artist, but at the end of the day, I don't necessarily agree with Kanye West as the person. Um, but at the end of the day, whether it's music, whether it's art, whether it's comedy, um, it, it is still this subjective art that uh, everybody can form an opinion on. And I, I, I think you're spot on that uh, it, it's hard to kind of form that opinion without seeing uh, what Dave Chappelle had to say. Right. And I mean, I just want to reiterate and tell the audience again that Dave Chappelle is black, um, but Dave Chappelle is Republican and he is not ashamed to say this. And it is kind of uh, sensical to, to see some parallels inside of his thoughts um, and ideologies with the Republican Party, um, maybe more to the Freedom Party of Trump's um, quote-unquote Freedom Party. Uh, but kind of taking that information in, do you think you could see why he could say some of those things? Yeah, for sure. Um, and if you look at Dave Chappelle's history, this isn't something new. Uh, Dave Chappelle has been transphobic for a very long time um, on top of many other controversial opinions that he has. Uh, and even then, he's also been very critical of Trump in itself. Um, and I, I'm recalling back to his monologue in 2016 and also his monologue in 2020, where in 2016, he told he told people to give Trump a chance. And I, I remember in the first five minutes of his monologue in 2020, uh, it was, thank God it's over. Um, and, and so uh, I, I think you have to remember that in the Dave, Dave Chappelle as a person, whether you respect him or not, is your own personal opinion. Yeah, and just going back to the fact of people having a voice on something, um, but not exactly actually listening to it or watching it themselves. I mean, what, would you trust a movie review from someone who didn't watch the movie? No, uh, unless it's... Unless it's you, maybe, just because you kind of know everything, but past that, probably not. Yeah, so, I mean, I think I realize this goes far further than just this scenario, and I kind of just take it as the media has ability to portray and socially lead, really, whatever. I mean, do you have any random pieces of news from this week that you don't care about, but you know anyway? I mean, not really off the top of my head. Um... I, I'll say that my uh, my anthill from this week about Kyrie Irving was kind of one. I was kind of like, ah, that's, that's kind of weird. I'll mention it. But uh, what about you? Uh, I mean, I, I could care less about Kourtney Kardashian and Travis Barker. But for some reason, I know they got engaged. And for some reason, I know Disick 
is not happy about it. I, media is something else. It really is, man. So, we have a game um, this episode that I'm calling Network Knowers. Nathan, I have a few headlines from several different media networks. Your job is to say what network the headlines are from. Listeners obviously can play along to see if you know what things are spread in what places as well. Your choices for networks are MSNBC, The Onion, a media outlet that takes real news and adds some fun rhetoric to it for those who don't know, or Fox News. Are you ready? So you're telling me we have liberal, fake, and false. Yep, All right, and, and, and your job is to discern in between those three. All right, let's do it. All right, so uh, the first one. Joe Biden rushing toward the Halloween deadline for American Marxism. Um, You know, American Marxism, trying to scare the people, it's got to be that false news media. Uh, let's go with Fox. Correct. Uh, definitely Fox News. American Marxism was uh, in quotes. Like, I mean, they were, they were really trying to force the issue. Next one. Biden builds beach home fence after halting border wall construction. So I'm, I'm tempted to go with the onion, but I'll stick with Fox News on this one. Once again, correct. Uh, Look at this. Two for two. They're, they're talking about him building a beach home fence just so they can bring up the border wall. I, I, you know, impressive. Uh, so, next one. Kirsten Cinema doesn't want to raise taxes on the rich because, of course, she doesn't. Of course, she doesn't. The Onion Man. So oh. that's actually from MSNBC, uh, which I think kind of makes sense because they're left and they're saying Kirsten Cinema is not with us. So let's just throw her in the dirt. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, not not surprising, but disappointing to not stay perfect three for three, but. We we move. <laughs> the next one, Democrats sick of being blamed for cowardice on issues they actually just don't care about. Let's stick with the Onion on this one. Hundred percent the Onion. Uh, I, I don't find a, a lot of uh, faults in this uh, actually, <laughs> but uh, to say it so blatantly, it had to be something like the Onion. You know, over the last five years, uh, the onion has become more and more real, and I think that's a little scary. But uh, <laughs> we we moved. Uh, the next one, Democrats are trying to win a popularity contest, and they're going to fail. So, I, I could see being either MSNBC or Fox, um, just for the sake of let's let's say Fox. They only want to see Democrats fail. So. <laughs> So, again, this is a MSNBC. Uh, you, were, you were on the trail. You knew it had to be polarizing in a certain way. Uh, and, yeah, uh, I think that this was um, really actually referring to uh, the new uh, House of Representatives, um, new kind of people coming into power uh, and trying to win their seats um, and how they're trying to take it into a realm of anti-Trump, pro-whoever is running. Next one we have, poll finds most Americans would swap democracy for $100 Best Buy gift card. So, it's something that's so absurd that I'm kind of second-guessing myself with MSNBC, but I'm going to stick with the onion and hope and pray that this is uh, just a little light-hearted fun. 
yeah, that was definitely the onion. Um, I, I had to throw that in there because, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised there wasn't anything else uh, kind of put on, you know, about the January 6th insurrection. Uh, but this is probably the, the best way to put it, just in a lighthearted manner <laughs> as possible. Next one we have, what Biden's massive socialist spending splurge could mean for your taxes? I mean, come on, Charles. This is a gimme. It's got to be Fox News. Yeah, definitely. They, first of all, said uh, a three S's, uh, an alliteration in their headline, which I think is a no-no in journalism. Socialist spending splurge. I mean, they made it sound as bad as they possibly could. Hey, say it three times and you turn to Bernie Sanders. <laughs> the next one we have, Democrats attempt to woo Joe Manchin for a reconciliation bill by taping single Hershey's kiss to latest draft. You know what? Um, for the onion, if if that's all it takes, then I hope Biden has a whole thing of Hershey kisses ready to go. Yep, that was the onion. Uh, again, I think almost too true to uh, actually, you know, wrap our heads around. But uh, they're they're really trying to sweeten the deal so much just to get mentioned on the good side of things. So Hershey's kiss, why not? Yeah, it's like you said, sweeten the deal. Last one. Can America's least democratic institution continue to protect democracy? Now, this actually sounds like an article I would read. So we're going to go with MSNBC on this one. And correct. There we go. Uh, one of MSNBC's uh, top 20 uh, actual articles on uh, their media platform. Um, and has been there for quite a while and also, once again, has been there since January 6th, um, citing the impossibility of trying to keep democracy um, in, in check. So... Uh, I'd say I didn't do too, too bad then. Yeah, I mean, you you did about just as expected. I, I mean, I just wanted to kind of point out the difference in between Embassy and Fox News is really that there isn't much um in that the fact that if you were on fox news you would get some very polarizing things uh, about republicans if you were on msnbc you get some pretty polarizing things about democrats and i think that just kind of goes hand in hand with what we were talking about with dave chappelle that you know if the media gets a hold of it uh, they can point you in any direction they kind of want yeah for sure so we didn't talk about the media platform of CNN uh, because they are kind of held in some high esteem to being the most uh, non-biased, uh, but Donald Trump certainly does not seem to think so recently. But uh, on October 21st, CNN held a town hall with President Biden. There were some laughs, some grimaces, and some memes to come out of the event, but really someone needs to talk about the actual meat and potatoes of it. If you are unfamiliar with town halls, the format has citizens ask questions instead of interviewers from the press. Of course, Anderson Cooper is hosting and does get a couple of questions himself, so I can't say with complete justification that this is by the people for the people, but it generally is. Now for this segment, I picked out some questions and answers from the hour and some change long interview that I feel could be talked about. We will take a look at the question and whether it asks what it needs to, and also take a look at Biden's answer and whether it answered what it needs to. So for the first question uh, that uh, I wanted to take a look at well, is going to be about education. Uh, take a listen. 
Thank you for taking my question, Mr. President. We've heard in the news that the proposal for two years of free community college may be cut from your economic package. Um, an educated citizenry is absolutely crucial to solving complex problems like climate change. and the systematic um, inequities in this country. Uh, we hope that this is not cut from the package, but if it is, what can you do to ensure that all Americans can get the education that they need to face these issues? So what do you think about that question? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. It's a fair question when considering the rumors that are kind of happening right now. Um, you know, Biden had two major education policies uh, in his campaign and one was forgiving student loans and two was free community college for anyone and everyone that wants it. Uh, so I, I think it's fair that we hold him accountable and ask the tough question. Yeah, and I just want to point out that this actually was a question from a professor at Loyola. Um, so it kind of sit uh, or fit uh, pretty well hand in hand about education and someone who did teach education. Um, I mean, do you think two years of free community college is possible? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's very possible. Um, you know, community college is a great thing. Uh, neither you or myself did it, but I, I think it's something that I would recommend to almost anybody and everybody, uh, especially those who do want a four-year degree. Uh, I think it's a great first step uh, in taking to achieving that, and uh, I, it becomes even easier uh, when it comes to educating our public as a whole uh, with free community college. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with you too. Community college has been around for a while. Um, it's not exactly what most people uh, assume is, you know, high regarding. Um, but it is a way to get more education, and inside the 21st century you do need more education and is it becoming more and more of a fact as we kind of move on. Uh, but I mean, do you think it's worth the price tag? I, I think the education of all Americans is a hundred percent worth the price tag girls. Yeah. I, I think that seems to be the struggle for those that are opposed to this kind of a uh, part inside the bill. Uh, they think it's not justifiable to spend that much money uh, to give free education to those that they think could get it some other way. And for some reason, they don't really come up with any other ways. But do you think there's a different solution with the same types of benefits? I, I think the one fair solution that is possible uh, would still require almost, if not less, than the same amount of money as free community college. And that is completely revamping our health our education on a local level uh, and impacting our high schools um, and, and making sure that we're getting the best quality education in every single state where we see states like Alabama, Mississippi, and South Carolina struggle so much. Uh, when we look at it from a global standpoint, we are the Mississippi of education to the globe. Um, and, and so I think that starts with primary and high school. Yeah, that's a, a good point. I, I, I was thinking of solutions myself and I couldn't really come up with something with the same benefits that wouldn't be as costly as they were kind of affirming uh, to be the cost of what this would cost. Um, but do you think Biden should answer this with a blatant, we're going to get it done? Uh, do you think he should kind of keep it 
subtle um, and reaffirm, or do you think he should go the other route of with a different solution altogether? I think Biden does have a commitment to education. Um, we, we've seen the struggle that he has had with forgiving student loans. Uh, and so I would hope that he would maintain his commitment to education and, and stand strong in providing a free community college. All right, well, let's take a quick listen to his answer. Here's the deal. So far, Mr. Manchin and one other person has indicated they will not support free community college. So what, what I think we can get done is we can significantly increase the amount of money by 500 bucks uh, uh, payment for Pell Grants. And Pell Grants are available and they can provide for up to 30% of the cost of community college and or, and or college help tuition. So before we talk about the answer, some quick information about Pell Grants in case anyone needs a refresher. This information is coming from the studentaid.gov website. Federal Pell Grants usually are awarded only to undergraduate students who display exceptional financial need and have not earned a bachelor's, graduate, or professional degree. The current maximum of this calendar year is $6,495. The amount you get, though, will depend on your expected family contribution, the cost of attendance determined by your school, your status as a full-time or part-time student, and your plans to attend school for a full academic year or less. So knowing that, was President Biden's answer satisfying to you? Uh, so truthfully, it was a little disappointing, Charles. Um, I, I think I speak for a lot of our listeners who are more than likely college educated that Pell Grants don't do much help. Um, and for some, it does help a lot, but for many, uh, it is little to no help uh, in achieving that education. And especially on in terms of community college, um, I, I don't think that Biden's commitment is quite there where it should be uh, and what he promised when he was on the campaign trail. Yeah, I, I mean, he definitely did promise some big uh, topics for us, and he hasn't been able to follow through completely on that. Like he said, he's had some struggles uh, getting some financial aid kind of reduced. But do you at least think that it's a step in the right direction? Yeah, for sure it's a step in the right direction. Uh, I think that taking any priority for our education, whether it be Pell Grants, whether it be free community college, whether it be forgiving all student loans, I, I think is a step in the right direction. At the end of the day, we have to cultivate a culture for our future generations, and that starts with education. Yeah, that's that's well put. Um, as long as there is some type of education kind of build up inside the plan, I don't think people will be necessarily as mad as you expect them to be from him not actually uh, coming through with that promise of the high goals. Um, but let's take another look at a different question this time about climate. One of the largest issues that people have trouble comprehending the severity of is climate change. Many legislators and politicians today are lenient as they won't have to live with the future effects. Without the legislative support for the climate aspects of your budget proposal and the earth rapidly approaching the Paris Agreement's 1.5 degrees limit, what other backup plans do you have to ensure a future for the next generations? So again, did you like this question? I, I love that question. You know, we, we spent four years out of the Paris Climate Accords. Uh, we, you and me spoke last week about our policy on climate. 
and and so I think it is a great question to be asked, uh, especially when targeting it towards our future generations. So, imagine dead set on not having penalties incurred for the companies that aren't going full speed and you know changing up their sources of energy. What do you think is the way we can progress forward and keep Mansion happy? At this point, tell them that we won't incur penalties on coal and just strictly coal. Um, because I don't even think Mansion realized how small that is, but it'll keep them happy at this point. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. There's not many ways I think we can keep someone that we don't exactly have the full um, idea of uh, as happy as they should be to go for a bill such as this for climate uh but do you think there's a specific way biden should answer this yeah um following up on your last point uh mansion is only one senator it's not our job to keep him happy it's our job to make legislation that works for the american people and with that i think biden should answer the question uh, because biden was an integral part of getting involved in the paris climate accords during the obama administration uh biden has been very vocal about his belief uh even though he is somebody who won't have to deal with the issues in the coming years that we need to take and we have to take steps on the climate if we're gonna be sustainable yeah agreed and again like you said mansion is only one senator so is throwing mansion under the bus an option here I, I think it is an option here. Um, I don't think it's an option that Biden took, um, but also haven't listened to the answer yet. So we'll stay tuned. All right. And let's actually take a listen to what Biden has to offer for this. It has not. No, it, look, but Senator Manchin is opposed to that. He's opposed to it. But here's the deal. That is only one of well over well over a trillion dollars worth of expenditures for climate change. It's $150 billion. It's important. And what it says is that if, in fact, the utility doesn't pull back and continue to reduce the amount of carbon that they, they admit, that what will happen is they will end up paying a penalty. And so there's a penalty incurred. Joe Manchin's argument is, look, we still have coal in my state. You're going to eliminate it eventually. We know it's going away. We know it's going to be gone. But don't rush it so fast that my people don't have anything to do. I think that's not what we should be doing. But the fact of the matter is, we can take that $150 billion, add it to the $320 billion that's in the, in the law now that he's prepared to support for tax incentives, tax incentives, to have people act in a way that they're going to be able to do the things that need to be do. So, did you like his answer? I I agreed with most of his answer, Charles. Um, I, I think Biden understands that corporate social responsibility exists in our society. And I, I think incentives are a great way to do that. I, I think he also was prepared for the backlash that he would receive from his answer from Joe Manchin. Um, Char uh, Charles, he was very clear that he believes that this is something we need to do, and he's not gonna let Manchin stand in the way from that happening. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think it's, it's pretty telling how many times he actually mentioned Manchin inside this question and answer bit, um, and how it really did not fall to anybody else. It was pretty much him explaining what he and him have talked about um, and how he is trying to get this uh, going through. So, I mean, even though 
tax incentives do seem like a great idea. Uh, it's already been kind of a topic that most Democrats don't like with big companies having some of these tax breaks. Is it possible that we already have too many tax incentives for big companies already? I think we already do have too many tax incentives, Charles, but when it comes to our environment, it's something that we kind of have to give ground on, uh, especially knowing what Biden's policy is on these huge corporations, making them pay their fair share. Uh, moving forward, I think we can see many of these incentives start to disappear, and uh, hopefully climate is one that is productive to our society as a whole instead of just another random tax break. Right. And I mean, do you think Manchin signs off on this instead? I think it's a possibility. Um, I, I think Manchin is going to always fight for that security for coal, no matter what. And, and so as long as Biden can kind of provide some of that relief for coal, I think he'll have Manchin support and an incentive does that. Um, so I guess we just have to stay tuned. So I've talked a lot about um, the, the nuance of saying the actual budget of the bill, um, saying the price tag of the bill, uh, because it's been used uh, against us quite a bit. But what do you think about his use of the budget inside this? Yeah, um, I, I am very similar to you. I don't like to throw around numbers. Uh, one, because these are astronomically huge numbers that we are talking about. I'm not saying that Democrats are here trying to be big spenders. It's money that is necessary for our upkeep and our operation as a, as a country. Uh, with that being said, personally, I would probably not have used numbers myself because it just gives ammunition for Fox News uh, to put these big, scary number, uh, numbers in articles. Right. And I, I think I, I kind of had the opposite kind of opinion on this one just because, uh, first of all, I'm pretty sure that Biden was talking about the original proposed plan when he said that uh, a trillion dollars of the bill was focused on climate. Um, we obviously know the 3.5 isn't going to last, and one-third of that being on climate seemed uh, remarkably possible, but I think him mentioning the, the numbers made it attainable um, so that we were necessarily seeing what the trillion dollars was actually kind of breaking down. Um, I've, I've seen a couple of suggestions that said that you know the amount that we're, we were spending on that particular plan of making uh, penalties incurred could literally pay off the people that would actually be out of work with coal for tens of years. So I think it's almost pretty important to, to note some of these numbers as they are because you're also realizing that Manchin is also saying no to a lot of money that could possibly be moved to his favor. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think it is important that these numbers get discussed. Uh, I just personally don't necessarily think it is the objective right now to have this firm, strong number when we can't even get Manson to agree on anything right now. Um, once we kind of know more about where Manson stands, uh, that's when we can kind of start throwing numbers around a little bit more firm and confidently. Yeah, it makes sense. So... For this next question and answer, we are going to talk about it together because Biden wasted no time answering. Let's hear about the vaccine. Uh, Mr. President, let me ask you a follow about that. As, as many as, as one in three emergency responders in some cities like Chicago, Los Angeles, right here in Baltimore, are refusing to comply with city vaccine mandates. 
I'm wondering where you stand on that. Should police officers, emergency responders be mandated to get vaccines? And if not, should they be stay at home or let go? Yes and yes. Uh, by the way, by the way, I waited until uh, July to talk about mandating because I tried everything else possible. The mandates are working. All the stuff about people leaving and people getting it, you have, you have everyone from United Airlines to Spirit, all these airlines, are, we're not going to get all 96, 97% of the people have gotten the vaccine. Are you surprised to hear such a super polarizing answer from him? Honestly, Charles, I am not surprised to hear uh, such a polarizing answer, uh, strictly because this has been Biden's initiative since day one. Uh, he's been very clear on where he stands on mandates, uh, and it's nice to see that that hasn't changed. Of course, yeah, he has been saying this from the very get-go. Um, he's And the government themselves has spent a lot of money on getting vaccinations to the United States and getting to the quantity that we do have now. I mean, so do you agree with him about the ones especially needing the mandates need to be let go if they do not uh, actually agree? Yeah, I agree with him 100%. Um, I, I think we are at a very polarizing time, which is scary. Uh, but at the end of the day, these companies have the right to make their own decision. And many of these companies and many of these state governments are making these decisions to implement these mandates uh, because it is for the safety and well-being of their constituents uh, or their 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 workers. Um, and, and so they hold that right to make sure that anybody and everybody who is associated with them can be safe. So I was just thinking about this um, after I heard the vaccination uh, answer from Biden that yes, mandates definitely did 100% agree. If you don't uh, follow in line with them, then you probably shouldn't be there in the first place. 100% agree. But mandates don't have a timetable. I mean, can mandates end yeah of course mandates can end um i i think part of that goes to you know ending the spread of coronavirus doing your part getting the vaccine uh especially if it's mandated uh wearing your mask where required and being an integral part of ending it uh that way we can kind of just move past it I mean, with that being said, do you think it's actually somewhat reasonable for people who don't want to get the mandate to simply just outweigh the mandate ending? I don't think it's unreasonable if they're able to do it safely. Uh, I know many companies are offering for people to work from home if they don't uh, necessarily want to get the vaccine or wear a mask. Uh, many companies are providing uh, alternative uh, reasons for not getting the vaccine. Uh, and so there are ways for to have individual freedom and still follow a mandate. Yeah, I mean, when I first originally thought of, of mandates ending, I, I didn't really see a way they can end um, just for that reasoning. And I think a lot of people are already kind of coming with, with the thought that especially those inside the public enforcement that uh, Anderson Cooper was talking about that what if they just wait it out and then reapply a year or two down the line 
I mean, are, are we still taking liberties away or are they using their liberty for good here? Uh, is the mandates really a non-factor in this? Yeah, I mean, it's that's a really interesting question and it, it's something that's kind of just unforeseen until we figure out what actually is going to end up happening with COVID uh, and if it's ever something that's actually going to get under control. Um, but at the end of the day, that's also step number one. Right. You can't get to the finish line if you don't start. I, I completely agree. Uh, so, last question that I think we should take some notice in is uh, about the filibuster. Let's go ahead and listen to that. On voting rights, if it is as important to you as you say, I think there's a lot of Democrats who look at the filibuster uh, and would like to see it changed, even if it's just on this one case. Why do you oppose that? Is this a good question? I think it is a absolutely fantastic question from Anderson Cooper here, uh, because anyone and everyone who is involved in following the voting rights bill knows that we are not going to get this passed without dismissing the filibuster. So everyone knows this, and of course, Biden also knows this, but Biden spent a lot of time in the Senate. Do you think he agrees with dismissing the filibuster? Personally speaking, I don't think Biden is in favor of ending the filibuster, uh, simply because of the Senate man he is, and also the fearfulness he has of the future. Um, we know that Mitch McConnell is at his greatest strength when he is able to manipulate uh, the Senate rules and eliminating the filibuster if Republicans are ever back in control of the Senate. Uh, if Mitch McConnell is still around to be majority leader, uh, would only give him even more power. And I think that's something that Biden's absolutely terrified of. Well, I mean, hold on there. I mean, I think we're giving them a little too much credit. I don't, maybe, hopefully minority leader, you know? <laughs> but, I mean, in two different sides of, of this, how do you think Biden should answer this? So, I think first and foremost, he has to acknowledge the importance of passing the Voting Rights Act. Um, he, he has to make sure that people understand that this is a priority, that at the end of the day, this is a Republican agenda to kill it, uh, because at the end of the day, Republicans know when we vote in numbers that they will lose. Um, but to that point, I think he also has to be respectful of the process and realize that at the end of the day, this is something that has to go through the Senate. Uh, and if the Senate decides to implement the rule, uh, then it, it's something that's out of his personal control. Uh, but it, it's a Senate issue at the moment. And obviously saying that he does have some issues with dismissing the filibuster, do you think there's a way to fundamentally alter the filibuster in a way that actually still makes it convenient and actually uh, worthwhile inside the Senate? Truthfully speaking, I have a very, very hard time uh, seeing a realistic change to the filibuster without completely getting rid of it. Uh, the filibuster is a very powerful tool um, that both sides love to use um, when, when it's for their benefit. Um, and so it's just, it, it, I have a very hard time seeing it happen, uh, especially with the makeup of the Senate that we have at the moment. 
So let's see what Biden's um, ideas on the filibuster are with his answer. If, in fact, I get myself into, at this moment, the debate on the filibuster, I lose at, three, at least three votes right now to get what I have to get done on the economic side of the equation, the foreign policy side of the equation. So what I have said, you're shaking your head no, but let me tell you something, Jack, it's the truth, number one. Number two, number two, what I have proposed in the meantime is it used to be the filibuster the way it worked, and we have 10 times as many, more than that, uh, times the filibuster has been used since 1978. It used to be you had to stand on the floor and exhaust everything you had, and you and when you gave up the floor and someone else sought the floor, they had to talk until they finished. You're only allowed to do it a second time. After that, it's over. You vote. Someone moved for the vote. I propose we bring that back now, immediately. Did you like this answer? Uh, yeah, I, I think it was a very fair answer. Um, obviously, Joe Biden knows somebody that Apparently, I don't, uh, because outside of Mansion and Cinema, I can't tell you who that third vote would be, um, based off what we know when it comes to ending the filibuster to begin with. Um, but also, he's trying to provide alternatives. Um, and personally speaking, I just don't see that alternative happening happening in this current Congress. Um, but it, it, it's nice to see that Joe Biden, the Senate man that he is, uh, the Senate powerhouse that he is, uh, is still very involved and still very much cares about the integrity that the Senate does have when it comes to uh, its rules and procedures. Um, so I, I think it's a great answer from Biden, uh, although it's not one that I necessarily agree with. Yeah, I mean, I think he hits all the points that you said he should hit um, in the previous question before the answer. Um, he he kept it to the point where he obviously knows filibuster needs some changing, uh, but he also kept it respectful enough to say that it's going to be some changes that keeps the integrity of the filibuster uh, without keeping the in inhumane power of it. Uh, so, I mean, I think I already know your answer to this question just by based off of how you at or answered it, uh, the previous one. But, it, I mean, do you see this being a fix? Uh, at the time being, I don't see it being a fix. Um... I think right now the only way that the Voting Rights Act is going to get through um, for some unknown reason uh, from the Republican side is uh, for us to end the filibuster. Um, and, and I think we'll see here in a couple weeks um, that it, it's it's simply just a game of cat and mouse uh, with the filibuster and that it's something that's not going to change anytime soon. So that's all the questions and answers I had that I felt like that needed to be talked about from CNN. Of course, there were some other questions about child tax credits, um, some questions about the supply chain, uh, things I think could be remedied or are already remedied um, in a way that is really not changeable for the foreseeable future uh, for the moment. Um, but do you think just from the four questions and answers that you've heard that Biden seemingly did a, a good job in this? Yeah, I, I think Biden came in and he was prepared to answer some tough questions. Uh, his almost first year hasn't been as uh, progressive as he probably would have hoped. And um, I, I think he came in and had a policy outline ready to go. 
uh, and was understanding of the situation that he's in. Yeah, I, I think um, he hit a brick wall that he was not expecting to hit uh, really quickly on into his presidency. Um, and it's been a, a stronger wall than the one down at Mexico. But it's something that we have to think about in it's just his demeanor um, as the president. And I find it funny watching uh, the town hall that Biden at a lot of times made the crowd laugh. Um, he was very interpersonal. A lot of people that came up to ask a question, he would ask a question or two of them. Um, and being what we already know he is, he's just a, a good mediator, negotiator. And I find that also some other points inside the town hall, you realize uh, that he doesn't always have the, the correct stance on stuff. Um, he might keep it a little bit kind of opinionated. Um, and there are some moments that he kind of falls over his words. I mean, you heard the Pell Grant. Um, and at one point, he does forget. Um, some locations in California that he's been recently to talk about supply chain issues. Uh, so I think uh, it was all in all a, a pretty good showing from Biden. Um, but there's obviously a, a question there um, that kind of lingers about uh, Biden's kind of role as a president. Yeah, for sure. Um, Biden forever has been great on stage and has a great presence and a personable touch when it comes to connecting with somebody on an individual level. And I, I think that's what he excels at best when, uh, and I, I think we saw it on the debate stage. I think we saw it on his town halls during his uh, candidacy. And I think we saw it the other night during his town hall that he truly does care about the American people. And while he might let his beliefs show a little bit, or he may forget a location every once in a while, uh, it, it goes to show his human side and that he is going to make mistakes as a president just like he has made mistakes as a person uh but at the end of the day he wants to do whatever is best for the american people um and also i think the other point worth noting is that we probably had the wrong joe on the town hall with all due respect to the president uh i i think we would have probably had a more productive night with joe manson up there on stage yeah, I think the, the questions asked were questions that we already knew Biden's answer to, uh, but the issue, as we know for certain and keep knowing, is just the mansion cinema effect uh, that's going on behind the background. But yeah. that being said, I mean, I also want to talk about the fact that this is not a very common occurrence for Biden uh, so far. Um, it's been talked about that in the first year of the presidency, uh, Barack Obama did nearly 150 plus uh, personal interviews with press or news sources um, like Anderson Cooper or your Tucker Carlson's or anybody who you can think of um, will be a one-on-one -on -one, uh, interview with. Uh, and he had 150 plus of them in his first year. Uh, Trump had over 50. I think he had 57. Um, but Biden has been uh, an all-time low for the most recent presidents. Um, coming under 30 for this first year. Do you think there's a, a reason for that? Uh, yeah, I, honestly, I do. And I don't think it has to do with President Biden and himself. Um, I, I think he is busy trying to work for the American people, uh, trying to find a solution with Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema over the past couple months. 
uh, he was dealing with Afghanistan. And also keep in mind that he's been dealing with a pandemic since day one of his presidency. Um, and, and so I think part of it is that Biden is quickly and constantly having to work on one thing or another or if not five different things at once. Uh, and outside of that, I think he wanted to just provide the sigh of relief that we're not going to have to worry about what the president says every day after we did for the four, uh, four previous years. Yeah, I think that pretty much uh, hits the nail on the head. I mean, he even said it during one of another um, audience members' questions where they asked for Lua being short, uh, why he hasn't visited the southern border yet. And he pretty much answered just like you did. Uh, he's been busy with a lot of different other things. Um, and he says, yeah, I probably should. And I feel like this is the same kind of deal. He probably should take some more news uh, press conferences and interviews uh, just so he can get things out that need to be get out, like the BBB. And that being said, I think this town hall in and of itself was almost an ad for the BBB. Uh, pretty much every question had to do with something that was covered inside that reconciliation bill. Uh, do you think that was, you know, clever uh, kind of marketing on the administration side? Or do you think that is what Americans really care about right now? Yeah, I, I think it's a mix of both. Um, I think Jen O'Malley Dillon and Jen Psaki and that entire communications team in the White House are very smart and very strategic. And they knew that if they are able to get ahead and talk about BBB before it gets passed, uh, that people are going to be more aware and people are going to be excited. Uh, and it's going to get a bigger reception than what people are expecting. Uh, and on top of that, it's also marketing for it because not many people do know what it is at this exact moment uh, and what all it entails because it is one of the biggest packages in American history. Um, and, and so I think it is uh, a great opportunity to take a town hall and speak directly to the American people for the first time uh, in a nice, friendly setting that is a town hall. And just in this on the latter note, just how they did at the town hall, Anderson Cooper mentions uh, Biden's one of his more iconic lines during his uh, vice presidency uh, under Obama, where when Obamacare or, you know, Affordable Health Care Act was actually put into uh, works he said that this is uh, a big effing deal um and Anderson cooper asked the the necessary question of does he think the build back better plan is a bigger effing deal um what do you think about that um yeah one is plastic anderson cooper uh is he's somebody you gotta love and two um i i think that the big uh, the Build Back Better plan will end up being the biggest effing deal of Biden's administration, um, and so I, I think it's definitely a fair question to ask. Yeah, I, I mean, it's definitely one of the highest spending ones we'll see, um, and it's definitely something that actually keeps the foremost thoughts of the United States citizenry of just ahead. So I'm pretty I'm pretty excited to see. Uh, what we'll get um, in the next couple of weeks. That being said, we're going to go into another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, redistricting and our hill and valley of the week.
you've enjoyed listening to our words, now enjoy reading them. Go check out our blog and in general website at capitalseedspod.wixsite.com slash website. That's capital as in capital Hill, cspod.wixsite, W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com slash website. back so let's talk about redistricting redistricting is the act where state legislators redraw their district maps for their respective state our representative state legislators are elected from these political divisions the redrawing happens every 10 years after census information comes in and brings with it some rules and regulations including each district must have nearly the same population as its counterparts and must not discriminate on race or ethnicity the glossary of redistricting is quite expansive, so to help everyone understand that a little bit more, let's start with gerrymandering. Quite often the most known of the glossary just because it's often been the people's catchphrase word of bad redistricting, even though it's only a negative connotation. Care to enlighten us a little bit on that, Nathan? Yeah, so gerrymandering has been around for ages. Um, at the end of the day, uh, both Republicans and Democrats uh, participate in gerrymandering uh, and in this process of trying to create the biggest political advantage when drawing these uh, congressional maps that they can in each state. Yeah, uh, gerrymandering has honestly probably been the biggest word that I remember um, from any of my like government classes. Um, especially in high school and previously before that. Um, you know, U.S. government was a, a, a curriculum that needed to be had for some reason. Um, obviously, uh, learning about the U.S. government is important, um, but the fact that gerrymandering is something that is pretty extensively talked about is always very odd considering redistricting happens every 10 years. So I feel like a lot of people have this idea of gerrymandering in their head that they know is bad for some reason. I mean, can you explain why people uh, hear that word so often? Yeah, so, I mean, gerrymandering is by far the most obvious one uh, of the three forms of redistricting that we're going to kind of talk about a little bit. And, and so that's kind of why it's the one that gets mentioned the most. Um, you know, I, I learned about gerrymandering in high school, but never learned about contiguity or uh, compacting. Uh, and, and so it's just kind of odd uh, that we all learn about this, but don't really know why they say it's bad. And, and, and so really the reason why it's bad is because it means that we're not putting the representation of the people first. We're putting the ideas of how many Democrats or how many Republicans can we fit into this state. And, and so a lot of times, um, just because uh, data supports uh, that race and political ident identity are connected, uh, we, we kind of see racial gerrymandering in these majority-minority districts um, that, that are over-representative of that district but doesn't reflect the ideas of the state. Uh, and, and so that, that's why there's such a huge focus on gerrymandering across the United States. Yeah, and I mean, you brought up the other two that, again, we will be talking about, and it's pretty obvious that gerrymandering is the one that kind of uh, makes more sense 
in the actual proposed maps if you do look um, through what has been proposed so far uh, you can see that it's pretty obvious what certain states are going for um, with gerrymandering and again while it has a negative connotation it's it's not illegal in, in any type of fashion it's just stating uh, the act of you know making these divisions in places that make sense for certain uh, government types uh, but I think compared to contiguity in compacting it's probably the most just because that's most often we see uh, I mean can you remember any type of situation where you've seen contiguity uh, in, in any of the proposed maps obviously it's pretty much outlawed um, and not possible in most states at this point but I mean even for a funny gag I've seen plenty of gerrymandering things that you know maybe 90% of the state is one district uh, as opposed to 10% well I, don't, I haven't seen very many gags of like an island inside one district yeah for sure um, and, and I mean you know the two most obvious examples of gerrymandering that come to mind uh, or the two that went to the Supreme Court with uh, cases in North Carolina and the case in Maryland uh, where North Carolina gerrymandered in favor of the Republican Party and uh, vice versa with Maryland and the Democratic Party. And a lot of times, uh, contiguity is involved in that, um, ma making sure that it is contiguous, making sure that they're not impacting uh, certain people and making it unpractical for people to vote in that district. Uh, and, and so I think gerrymandering is kind of just that all-encompassing uh, idea of let's take these two immoral and illegal practices uh and that way when we see gerrymandering uh, gerrymandering we know what it is without having to say what it is yeah and, and that's kind of what i was going for because that gerrymandering is really the catch-all word of the redistricting glossary uh again while it in itself is not uh illegal or against the rules uh it covers for most public uh, people, um, all of the things that are <laughs> uh, not allowed, such as contiguity, which essentially just means the principle that says all areas and districts should be physically adjacent. So obviously you can't make an island district inside of another district attempting to exclude or include a certain people or city. I mean, do you have any type of situations or any kind of things that you can remember that you've seen some contiguity um yeah like i i mean like i said with north carolina uh for example we would see um kind of like a fish hook almost around the uh the city of charlotte uh and i remember there was one uh one specific one uh that lasted from south of charlotte almost uh which is essentially in the middle of the state and almost went to the most eastern part of the state uh, just for the sake of um, contiguity, it literally went up one side of the interstate for about half of the state. Um, and, and so nobody lived on the road because, you know, it's the side of an interstate. And it was the one part where um, the district continued. Yeah, so, I mean, by looking at a map and seeing it in front of your face contiguity is probably uh the the more obvious one um as you can see exactly what is actually trying to happen while on the other side things like compacting 
which refers to the, the principle that the constituents within a district should live as near to one another as practicable. This is kind of more of a topic that deals with the widening of urban to rural population, which in general you don't really see other than you might see uh, the certain dots and cities that are obviously a little bit more populated. Uh, but it's kind of hard to tell where something is being compacted or not just because it doesn't look weird. It just looks like um, you're encompassing what you're trying to encompass. Do you have any thoughts on lighting our listeners on this? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, and I mean, contiguity and compacting are two that almost essentially always go hand in hand with each other. Uh, typically, if you've seen one, you're going to see the other. You're never going to see one by itself. Um, simply because there's not really a way for us to act in uh, a, a certain population, whether it be in a rural or urban district, without reaching out to meet the necessary requirements that uh, a, a district has to have in order to meet the qualifications and not be red flagged for gerrymandering. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think compacting is actually becoming a little bit more known uh, specifically recently just because of that widening urban to rural population where now you're seeing a lot of these maps go in to a point almost like if you're looking at like a pizza uh, and then expanding hours to kind of encompass all these ones that are that are kind of off to themselves in these rural areas um, yeah, I, I mean, if you look at the map for Illinois, um, there might be five to six congressional districts that don't go within an hour of Chicago. Uh, and then we, we see, I want to say like 10. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily 10. I think it's eight. Uh, but districts that all go into at least within an hour drive of Chicago uh, and then expand all the way out to Wisconsin, all the way down to Ohio. Um, not Ohio, excuse me, um, Indiana. And, and, and so it kind of just goes all across the place. And, and so it's just a very uh, weird approach to separating our populations within a state. Yeah, and it kind of goes with that kind of rule and regulation of having nearly the same population as all of its other counterparts of the division. And at that I think because uh, we've specifically talked about the kind of movement into urban and suburban areas, do you think the kind of compacting rule as it stands is maybe a little outdated at this point? Yeah, for sure. Um, just because there are necessary population requirements that are required uh, in order for uh, it not to raise that red flag of gerrymandering like I discussed. Uh, that we're going to have to begin breaking up these cities uh, that are so overpopulated uh, and kind of dig in and carve out that necessarily uh, equal distribution of population uh, in order to make any reasonable uh, congressional map work. Yeah, yeah, but that's when you start getting um, some combatants on both the left and the right side, like we said. Uh, th this is kind of a thing that's been done for a long time. I mean, can you see any way or any reason why somebody would actually, hey, bring up, why don't we change this? Yeah, I, I don't see a reason why they would, uh, simply because it's something that gets done every 10 years. And so the thought is, oh, well, they 
they screwed us over this census, we'll make sure to screw them over in the next census. Uh, and as we become more and more polarized as a country and as two political parties, I just have a very hard time seeing us kind of dive away from this uh, this mindset of let's try to get the best of each other in each state and battle for each and every seat in the House of Representatives. Yeah, and I think the, the battle is so kind of isolated in between states that I'm, I'm starting to see that nationally it's not really as much of a big deal anymore um, just because they know it's going to happen in the Democratic states and the Republican states. Now it kind of seems like how Senate races are where we're focused on the states that matter. Um, and in some kind of districtings, uh, it, it really does matter which how many seats you can get uh, because House of Representatives is a large, uh, large population. Um, so do you think maybe we should kind of outscope a little bit um, and kind of take in the United States as a whole instead of looking at it federally as we are now? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think when you break it down, uh, each state is going to look at its delegation. Uh, and look at Georgia, for example, who from the 2020 census was able to gain a 7-7 to distribution of seven likely Democrats, seven likely Republican districts. Uh, and so that provides uh, some competitiveness and some equal representation in Congress uh, to what Georgians stand for in this country. Uh, meanwhile, we see states like Texas and Florida who are uh, both grew in population and in Republican districts. Uh, and at the end of the day, we're talking about control of the House of Representatives just based off these two states alone uh, and how they're able to draw their maps in the way that they want to. Yeah, and it's kind of hard not to see um, as you're kind of going over each state. And we know that this has been a policy since the beginning of the United States, essentially. But it, it is kind of crazy to know that certain states have a lot more districts than, say, uh, like Nebraska, who only has three, or some other states that only have their one congressional district. Uh, I mean, I think in that kind of case, it's pretty funny how when we originally were talking about uh, representation uh, being kind of equal amongst us, how we've kind of gotten over that and have kind of solely focused on the fact that hey we did it with the senate hey everybody has two um and but we still talk about it with the electoral college as it also doesn't really make sense but for some reason redistricting thing kind of gets away with a, a pat on the back yeah I mean, I mean people forget how important it is to uh fill out the census and now we are kind of seeing the repercussions of that um for example, New York was 83 people away from not losing one of their congressional districts. Uh, and though those matter, one, when it comes to retaining the House and keeping control of the House, and it matters, two, and when it comes down to the Electoral College. Um, you know, it, the need for 270 to win uh, is going to take every single one when we have... Uh, this shift of uh, the amount of representatives and the amount of electoral votes shifting towards these Republican states um, in their Republican-controlled state house, uh, who are able to redraw these lines as well, uh, when relating back to the House of Reps. Yeah, and 
I mean, as we are right now, we've already had some proposed maps be confirmed with Oregon, Maine, Nebraska, Indiana, and most recently, West Virginia. And I mean, the biggest thing to know here is that really there are 45 more states to go. Uh, there's not much to note. Uh, it is worth mentioning, though, that Oregon got a little more favorable on the Democratic side this redistricting period. And West Virginia has lost a left-leaning or right-leaning Republican district almost entirely. Uh, it is it kind of too soon uh, to know or should this be a possible upside for the future so uh, I actually think it's a downside for Democrats to be completely honest with you uh, while we're seeing decreases in West Virginia uh, while we're seeing Oregon gain two seats while we're seeing Illinois possibly gain a seat uh, we're also losing massively seats in Texas where uh, these competitive districts on a best blue day uh, that could flip blue are going to become 60 plus uh, safe Republican districts. Uh, we're seeing the same thing happen in Florida, and we're also seeing the creation of more seats. Uh, so that gap in the House closed from eight to about three, simply just because of gerrymandering and uh, the control that Republicans have over these state state legislations. Uh, and so I, I think we know that it is a downturn for Democrats. But it's not the end of the world if we can still win the elections when we need to. Yeah, and I also kind of want to just bring in the fact, uh, again, from, you know, the federal point, whereas some of these uh, states don't have the amount of districts that certain others like Florida and New York, the places where people are going with, you know, their Gucci tote bags. Um, do, do you think that, is, is there a call for maybe um, some type of, of movement west is there a call for some ruralizing that needs to be done is there a way that we can get some kind of even uh, playing ground for places that are obviously getting like retirement people to florida for va for vacation and to stay in their later points of their lives i mean obviously um and very obviously it, it happens to be a lot of republicans that end up moving that way because they are inside that older uh, kind of age so is it fair to say that, you know, you might get 100 people that are all right-leaning um, and we'll send, you know, two to another place that are left-leaning and, you know, you'll get one vote and then we'll get 90? Yeah, um, completely, completely understandable logic. And I, I saw an article the other day that had mentioned that uh, California had enough people to move into six other states and make all of those states a safe democratic state including alaska for example um and, and so there's that the issue of people moving and changing the demographics of these states that we think we know so well uh and consider safe on an electoral map um but at the same time we also have to keep in mind that our cities are ever growing as well um, in 2020, we saw a president win with the least amount of land mass possible uh, on a voting spectrum, uh, and yet still was the president elected with the most votes in American history. So um, I, I think that shows that there is a overwhelming amount of still a urban lifestyle, uh, and that that's going to continue while growing in these uh, rural areas continue as well. And... I think that makes a good point for why it is necessary that these these movements do happen. 
but I also can see it from the other side where places like Nebraska, if you talk about doing something with ethanol and, you know, corn is one of their biggest exports, I mean, I, I can't see Nebraska only being happy with one vote, Why you know, Florida, who doesn't care uh, at all, can have 100 votes on the subject, um, and they will have way more of a voice. And part of that is why we still have the Senate at the end of the day as well, uh, because right now the most powerful man in the world is a wannabe coal miner from West Virginia. So uh, I think that shows that if coal from West Virginia can be of major importance, then so can ethanol from Nebraska. Yeah, I think I think you hit it right on the head on that one. That's exactly what I kind of want to get to uh, about just what even though distribution kind of looks a little bit strange um, and when you do look at maps you'll see that there's a lot more districts in some areas it's not the end-all be-all um, that's why the Senate was created with two for even representation because at some point you knew it had to be somewhere uh, but of course there are some battles still being faced for certain proposed maps in several other states Nathan do you care to comment on some of the specific state struggles yeah, for sure. Um, I think one of the biggest struggles right now is in Illinois. Um, Illinois has proposed multiple maps that uh, clearly show compacting of, of the suburbs of Chicago. Um, and, and Democrats are doing anything and everything in their power to make sure they can gain that one additional seat. Uh, and with that, we're seeing the exclusion of very important Republican members of Congress, including Adam Kissinger. Um, who personally is one of the few Republicans in Congress that I can say I like and I have some agreeance with. Uh, and then it goes even more so in Michigan, where we're seeing 22 to 25 maps already proposed, um, and yet no clear mindset as to which one is going to come out on top. Uh, we see the state of South Carolina being sued for taking too long and for the exclusion of African Americans uh, in their map drawings. And then the state of Florida and Texas, where we're seeing uh, these major, major, major conservative laws coming out of uh, both Governor Manchin's of DeSantis uh, and Abbott. And at the end of the day, uh, we're seeing Republicans grow even stronger in these two states. So there's a lot of major issues, and there's still a lot of time before we figure out what these maps are actually going to look like. But it's something that we have to follow closely because it's kind of shaping out what our Congress is going to look like for the next 10 years. Yeah, and just to I mean, help people kind of look at this map, uh, it's because it'll be a first time for many people again, since this happens every 10 years. People uh, who went through this last time um, probably were still in elementary school uh, and middle school, and now they're kind of understanding a little bit more of what's going on in Congress. So, I mean, do you think that at, at some point um, we should probably uh, kind of give a little bit more of some knowledge on these things? Uh, I, I think we know Senate um, very, very well. Uh, House of Representatives has been a, a kind of downfall um, on their actual campaign budgets, and obviously it's very, very minuscule and different um, compared to the Senate. Um, scope of things, but I'm not sure even people listening now know who is running for their representative spot, and 
at this point, a lot of times this will just be a straight ticket vote. Is I mean, is there any way to combat that? Yeah, there's definitely a way to combat that. I mean, we we look at North Carolina, for example, who voted for a Democratic governor and a Republican senator, uh, and then at the same time still has a relatively now competitive districts uh, across the state, as well as some very well gerrymandered both Democratically and Republican districts. Um, and so it matters who you vote for. Um, down ballot elections matter, uh, whether it's your house, whether it's your your local, whether it's your state rep, whether it's your state senator. Uh, these are the people who are going to make the biggest changes and the people that need to be discussed the most. Uh, they might not be getting a shout out on Capital C's podcast, uh, but at the end of the day, these are the people that you should know the best and the people that you uh, know who you're voting for when you step in that room, not voting for the name you think is the funniest or whoever is at the top of the ballot. Um because these are the people that really make our difference in our communities. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty brilliant segue into our last segment of the episode in our Capitol Hill or Hidden Valley. Um, Nathan, who do you have for your hill this week? Yeah, so the hill of the week for me is Ruben Gallego, who is in the headlines this week as he became the presumptive favorite for the uh, as a potential challenger against uh, Kirsten Cinema. And, uh, I mean, let's be honest, what Democrat hasn't had a headache recently with, uh, with cinema? Uh, and as tensions between cinema and Democrats in Arizona continue to grow, uh, just be on the lookout for Gallego to be a serious contender in 2024 for Arizona. Uh, already speaking out and saying that she better walked out. Multiple staffers from her camp have already quit. Uh, it looks like we might see a very fun primary heating up in 2024. Yeah, I, I, I'm eagerly watching that because I think um, with everyone when we say that, we kind of want Cinema gone. Uh, but for my heel, I have Terry and his run in Virginia. Um, and honestly, it's really not for anything he's done specifically, uh, but just for the enthusiasm he's taking into the race. Obviously, there's a couple of states in this whole thing that uh, matter a lot um, inside of the next Senate. But... I, I appreciate that Terry is actually taking the time to continue to put up this uh, this struggle inside Virginia um, against somewhat of a more polarizing state to begin with, um, who also has a senator that has been wishy-washy with Trump um, and has gotten some endorsements and accepted some kind of slowly uh, from Trump as well. So it's, it's interesting to see. Uh, someone fight a little bit harder um, especially take some help when it's needed uh, because it might be needed for Terry um, and I, I appreciate it uh, but other than that what, what about your valley yeah for sure and and you know as a Virginia resident living right across the bridge from Washington DC I'm excited to see uh, Terry pulling out the big guns and the former governor getting ready to hopefully take back the uh, the governor's mansion uh, but all things aside, uh, with my Hidden Valley, I have Rand Paul uh, as just an utter disappointment for this week. Uh, on the new show, Paul continued his bickering with Dr. Fauci, stating that he lied and uh, that he will only ever continue to work around the truth uh, with his findings that COVID's gain of functioning or the ability to change uh, was not necessarily unpredictable. Paul has called Fauci to be fired and for an investigation, and the truth is that COVID has been unpredictable this whole time. Uh, a lot of it, the exact reason why the CDC guidelines have been forever changing, 
Uh, and to the point, a lot of it is on Rand Paul for his spreading of mis uh, misinformation. Um, and so for Paul to say that Fauci intended to blatantly lie, I just have a hard time believing that. Uh, I think Paul is just looking for some media points, uh, looking just to drag somebody that he has a personal vantage against through the mud. Uh, meanwhile, Paul continues to go out and spread this mis misinformation on the, uh, uh, to this day on COVID in and of itself. Yeah, and unsurprisingly, my valley for this week was also Rand Paul, but for a different reason. So obviously, you can see he's been pretty busy in media, but Rand Paul uh, recently had a speech inside his chambers where he said that the spending that Democrats had planned for their agenda uh, is simply too much. Um, and in a way, he kind of spoke about it as if he was an economist, and it didn't really work in the way that I think he wanted it to work. Um, it, to me, seemed like he was just trying to throw out the number just as much as a Fox News would be um, and just as much as an opposing Republican senator would be inside these upcoming races. Uh, he basically said that, hey, these things aren't free uh, because we'll pay for them later. And while that's true, there are already ways that they have suggested and decided to add in to the bill for ways to do exactly that and pay for it um so in general he's speaking on something that hasn't been completely um lined and underlined inside of the proposed bill just so he can make uh, some fear in some of the constituents of the united states in general so again ren paul not looking his uh best well I think that'll be it for this episode. I appreciate you tagging along uh, for this pretty long one, but I hope you've gotten some good information out of it. Um, that's all for me, and I hope to see you next week on Capital Seas. This podcast was brought to you by the creative efforts of Charles Greenlee and Nathan Crunkleton. To stay up to date with our upcoming podcast episodes and when they will be updating, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Capital C's Pod. That's capital, like Capitol Hill, C-S-Pod. Thanks for listening, and we will be back with more from the Hill.